Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 298. I'm Douglas Wilson, and you are whoever you are. Thank you for joining us. It's good to have you here. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. It is no doubt a busy day, but thank you for listening. So I want to talk a little bit, um, give something of a report of a recent uh, visit that my wife and I were privileged to take to the nation of Israel. So never, I've never been to Israel before. And this was, uh, we were there for, trip took like, I think we were there 10 days, nine or 10 days. And we landed, we met up with our group. We had a, uh, it was a group associated with uh, New St. Andrews. And we had a, a, a tour guide, a believer, a very competent, uh, very well-educated tour guide who met us at the Tel Aviv airport. And we all f- flew in from various points of the compass. And uh, gathered in the airport there, and loaded on, the, jumped on the bus, and hit the road. Now, there were there are several, lots of sites, lots of things to see, uh, lots of things to report on. And I'm just going to touch on some of the the bigger items, some of the bigger things that I took away or that that I learned. Israel is about the size of New Jersey, so that's the. It's not not a big country. It's about the size of New Jersey. And we drove around it sort of clockwise. We headed north initially, spent two nights in Galilee. Uh, Then we spent two nights in Jericho, headed south, two nights in Jericho, and then three nights in Jerusalem. And then the final night back in Tel Aviv, and we flew out. So probably the biggest takeaway for me was having the topography of Israel that I've had in my mind for a long time, uh, being a Bible reader and someone who's familiar with the geography and looked at, looked at maps plenty of times and all of that. The, one of the big takeaways for me was to have the whole thing appropriately sized, <laughs> right? So I, I had the layout in my mind and it was fairly accurate, but it was, uh, I needed to have that layout sized right. Uh, so we, we went up, we went north of Tel Aviv and Tel Aviv incidentally is near the coast and it's right next to old, uh, Joppa. So, uh, from Joppa, we went up the, uh, went up the coast to Caesarea, spent some time there in Caesarea. And I'm going to touch on some things where I talk about the size of things. Uh, Caesarea is right on the Mediterranean. It was the um, it was the place where Felix and Festus were. Agrippa was there when Agrippa gave his um, big speech and didn't give glory to God when the people cried out the voice of a God and not a man. And he was struck by an angel and was eaten by worms and died. We saw the place where he uh, what where he was when he gave that speech. The Praetorium. The, the where where Paul appeared before Felix and Festus, the floor of the Praetorium is still there, and then uh, maybe fifty feet away from that Praetorium floor, they just recently excavated and found 
the prison where Paul spent a couple of years. So there was a hole in the ground, and we were able to take a picture of the prison doorway where Paul spent a goodly amount of time. We then went up to Mount Carmel. We went up to north, uh, northern end of Israel, first Mount Carmel, where Elijah had the showdown with the priests of Baal. And then during our time in Galilee, we also went to Mount Hermon. And Mount Carmel and Mount Hermon, those are mountains. This is a real mountain. But so, for example, jumping down south during our time in Jerusalem, we went up to the, we, our bus drove up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. And we walked from the top of the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley, which is where Gethsemane is. So we walked down into the Kidron Valley and then up into Jerusalem. But the Mount of Olives, that walk from, from the top down to the Kidron Valley took about 15 minutes. Now, the whole Judea, the whole city is up in the mountains, so we were well above sea level. We were like 2,500 feet above sea level. But here in Idaho, I, we live 2,400 feet above sea level, and it was, oh, okay. The Mount of Olives was where I thought it was, but it was not as big as I thought it was. That, that's what I mean about appropriately sized. When we back up to the northern end, when we were at the northern end of Israel, we were out in the woods and we came to the place where Jeroboam built the altar to the golden calf. So there, there was one at, at Dan and one at Bethel, one at the northern end of the northern kingdom of Israel, one at the southern end. And the foundation of that altar is still there out in the woods. So, okay. And they built a frame a steel frame around it so you could see the uh, original size of the altar. We spent the I uh, spent our two nights in Tiberias. Uh, it was the lake the Sea of Galilee is also called the the Lake of Tiberias and the, the the town on the western side Tiberias is where we stayed. Then we went down to Jericho, saw the old city of Jericho. The uh, and this again one of the surprises was the uh, City of Jericho was not a mega metropolis. It was comparatively small. Then, after two nights there, down to uh, Jerusalem, where we saw all the saw all the things. Right, we went to we didn't go. We went to the Church of the Holy Nativity uh, in Bethlehem, which is all built up in sort of a touristy madhouse. We didn't do the the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Is the same sort of thing in Jerusalem. We didn't go there. We went to an alternative tomb site. There, there are competing tomb sites. Went to um, Golgotha. Well, what is? I think it was Golgotha. There, there. Some of these places. Some of these places are the archaeologists or the researchers can identify with certainty. So we went to the Valley of Elah, where David fought Goliath, and that's identified with certainty. A high degree of probability that this was the this was the place there was nothing touristy about the valley of elah there was the israelite ridge on one side an iron age israelite fortress on the top of that ridge there was a brook running along the base of the israelite ridge and on the op- opposite side was the philistine ridge with a gas station on on one end now there's a lot more i could say but i'll just put it this way the um 
the the thing that you if you visit if you have the privilege of visiting there, it's well worth it. But the thing that's going to be adjusted in your mind would be the distances. I will mention one other thing about it, and that is, it's a small enough country that you don't just point to one thing that it's not like you know if you look at the Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. About the only thing that happened at the Battle of Gettysburg, at Gettysburg is the Battle of Gettysburg. But in Israel, multiple things happened in the same location. So a good example would be the place where Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River is the same place where uh, Elijah was caught up, caught up to heaven. So Elijah's caught up to heaven in the place where Jesus was baptized. Things like that. Always will be God. Continuing on with episode 298, we're studying words that represent various sins in the Greek New Testament, and we're, as you know by now, we're calling this study homartiology. And we come now to the word theatrizo. All right, so T H E A T R I D Z O, theatrizo, which means to make a gazing stock. To make a gazing stock. This is uh, used once in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews 10.33. Partly, while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. So, you were made gazing stock by reproaches and afflictions, and also by hanging out with people who were made a gazing stock by reproaches and afflictions. So, a gazing stock is what happens when people slow down to stare at a car wreck. It's an object of fascination, sometimes horror, but people are in the grip. Now, sometimes people do it to themselves. They make themselves a gazing stock when they, by some wild and crazy action, draw that attention to themselves by themselves. You would have to be a block of wood or stone not to stare. You know, I mean, some people's children. But in this passage, we see how worldliness uses this reality as a way of defending the borders of that worldliness. The believers were made a gazing stock by means of reproaches and afflictions. In other words, they're just standing there minding their own business, being a normal human being, being a normal person, and because they're out of step with the worldliness of the world, the world makes them a gazing stock. They begin abusing them or afflicting them, and as soon as the first person throws the first rock, that is the signal that this person is to be despised, so they're made a gazing stock. In other words, the gazing stock phenomenon is something that can be artificially created. Someone can go down to a crowded street corner and set themselves on fire, and people are going to watch and see, and, and you know they're going to react to it like but the person did it to themselves but you could also artificially create that scenario by just picking a scapegoat picking someone and starting to abuse him and go after him and then there's a crowd contagion and everybody goes after him and that person has been made a gazing stock this is what happened to the early christians now it's a sin to do this to people the word is clearly related to our word for theater theatrizo theatrizo The people who do this sort of thing are putting on a production, and it's our task not to buy any of their tickets. So, uh, for our book review this time around, I want to review a book 
by Yoram Hazoni called uh, Conservatism, a Rediscovery. Conservatism, a Rediscovery. We live in a, a time when political conflicts have, uh, well, political conflicts and odd alliances have caused some words to, be, to get smudged and blurred. There's a difference between conservatism and libertarianism, even though conservatives and libertarians frequently agree on some things. So if you're talking about uh, some lawful product, let's say the sale, the manufacture and sale of widgets, the libertarian and the conservative are going to be of one mind on people should, uh, in saying that people should be allowed to do that. But for the libertarian, everything reduces to individual choice and everything reduces to contract. For the conservative, there are bonds and commitments and loyalties that we didn't choose. Okay? So for the libertarian, it all ultimately comes down to individual choice. And for the conservative, there are things, there are loyalties that I have that were assigned to me to have. I was born into my family. I did not select my father or my mother. And yet God's word tells me to honor my father and mother. I have certain obligations, ob obligations of loyalty uh, to my country, but I didn't pick my country. I didn't choose my country. I was born among these people and I have obligations to them. The conservative takes those assigned obligations seriously. The libertarian wants to minimize them and wants everything to be reduced to a matter of contract, to a matter of choice. I'm obligated if I chose. I'm obligated if I took this upon myself. The obvious difficulty with libertarianism, ideological libertarianism, is children. Children are born into this world, and they are helpless, and they have all kinds of duties and responsibilities simply assigned to them, not only by God, by having them born into this particular family, but then this family starts assigning responsibilities and loyalties to them. They go off to elementary school, and mom tells her little boy not to, not to disgrace the family name. And, and you see this reality throughout the book of Proverbs. A lazy son is a shame to his mother. Well, why is that? Well, because we're connected. It's not a matter of individual choice. Now, this is not to say that choice is a bad thing. It's a, it's a very good thing in its appropriate place. So let me illustrate. Um, uh, so before I uh, get too far away from uh, Hazoni's book, this is a great introduction to the conservative mind. Uh, Russell Kirk's book the, of, of that title, The Conservative Mind, is also very good. This is the same kind of book. If you want to shake free of individualistic libertarianism, most evangelical Christians, most believing Christians, are already largely free of collectivism and socialism. They, they don't like what the left is doing. But many Christians have been tantalized or attracted by libertarianism, but there's a hazard there. If you want to shake free of that, and I would encourage you to shake free of that, this would be a good book to get. Conservatism, a Rediscovery. Sorry, my last illustration of this. Let's say you have a couple of businessmen, and these businessmen, uh, one of them needs a uh, hundred widgets, 
and the other has a widget manufacturing plant. Okay? So they meet and they strike a deal. They sign a contract. I will pay you X amount of dollars for delivery of X amount of widgets by this date. Okay? So they make this contract. They sign it, shake hands, deal. So let's say that a couple of um, weeks later, these two businessmen happen to find themselves at some social event. And the social event is not a business setting, and they're just chatting about how things are going. And they discover in the course of conversation that the one businessman had the, an order canceled on him such that he doesn't need the widgets anymore. And the other guy with the manufacturing plant had his plant burned down. So he can't manufacture the widgets. So they both discover, oh, you don't need the widgets? Well, it turns out I can't make them. But they here they have this signed contract. Now, would it be lawful for these two men on receipt of this um, information to say, man, this, to have both of them say, man, this really helps out, actually. Do you mind tearing up the contract? No, I'd love it if we tear, tore up the contract. So both of them, as the makers of the contract, have the authority to tear the contract up. Okay, that's, it's, their, it's their prerogative. It's their word. It was their individual choice. And provided there was no co coercion or manipulation by one over the other, and they both wanted it, they have the authority to tear the contract up. So let's say you have a similar scenario, only it's a man and a woman who get married, as the song Jackson puts it, hotter than a pepper sprout. They got married in a fever. So they got married, and let's, let's say they're two years into the marriage, and no children. They've kept their property largely distinct and separate. And in the course of a conversation one evening, it comes out, I don't love you. You don't love me. We don't love each other. Neither of us like this. What do you say we get divorced? Now, are, here's the question. Are these two people, who both of whom want out, and it would be relatively painless in terms of kids and property and whatnot, to get out, do they have the authority that those two businessmen had to just tear up the contract? And the answer is no, they don't. Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. Marriage is not simply a matter of individual choice. It is not. It's something bigger. And th this is, the, I think, a, a rock upon which libertarianism founders. You, you can't make the fundamental issues of life like marriage, like children, like our basic building blocks of loyalty. You can't turn it into a matter of choice. Mm -hmm.